Well, what does a fool believe? It is so easy to see foolishness maybe in your kids or in your boss or in your employees, but it's not so easy to see it in yourself. As we're in the series called Word to the Wise, one of the themes we're looking at is foolishness and wisdom. How do we train wisdom into ourselves and our families? How do we also train ourselves out of our own foolish tendencies? Because there's ways in which all of us act and believe that are foolish. And to do that, we're teaching also how to study the Bible in a, in a real, uh, real simple way that I think would be helpful if you've never studied the Bible before. We've kind of looked at the Bible like it's a game. I don't know how many of you like word searches. But imagine a word search here. And hidden in here, hidden in the Bible, are different proverbs or idioms or words that are helpful for us. And today, as we look at how to help without hurting, what are ways in which we try and help people? We're looking for words like fool or words like anger, words like enabling, words like being wary. What should we be wary of? How we handle our anger. Let's look for a few of those together. Because the Bible's going to describe what it looks like for us to be very, very careful to look at our own foolish tendencies. And beyond that, there's different ways to manage somebody who's acting like a fool than somebody who's acting like they're wise. That changes how you parent at times. That ch- changes your strategic leadership related to your managing of people at times. Because if you're honest with yourself, inside of you is a wise person. Inside of you is a foolish person. And at times, inside of you is even an evil person. It depends on who's driving. And the Bible says that as you look at your foolishness, there's also ways in which you want to tap into wisdom. What does it look like to be wise? What does it look like to act like a wise person? And specifically, how can you help a fool be wary not to do the same thing over and over again? You ever gotten a circumstance where you've got somebody who just does the same thing over and over again? How do you help that? Or, or how do you help yourself stop doing the same thing over and over again? Well, tendency in our culture today is to rescue them. Here it is backwards. Rescue. To rescue fools. To always rescue people out of the consequences of their action. The Bible is going to really clearly warn us that is not particularly wise. In fact, it's going to give you a full-time job description if you decide you're going to rescue people who make mistakes all the time. That's what psychologists call enabling. Here's a tough one. Enabling. There it is. Wow. Enabling somebody is not letting them face the consequences of their actions. And specifically today, as it relates to anger, how you handle your anger, how other people handle your anger. And so the wisdom God's going to give us relates directly to your home, to your office, And maybe you've heard or read books or heard books about codependency or enabling or rescuing. There's certainly been plenty written in the last 30 years. But the premise is, how do you help without hurting? Because a lot of people have good intentions to help, but the very thing they try and do to help their kids, coddle their kids, and they don't become the best version of themselves. The best thing you do to try and help a friend who might be an addict ends up reinforcing or enabling their addiction, and it doesn't actually help them. This can happen on small scales or big scales. It happened in Haiti. After the uh, huge natural disasters hit Haiti, all over the world people cared. People wanted to help. And so from all over the world, gigantic shipments of rice came to Haiti. And the goal was to get cheap food that everybody could eat. The problem is there was such a surplus of all the food coming in from all over the world. There's now gigantic surplus of rice. And Haiti doesn't have a lot of economic engines. But guess what one of the engines was? Rice production. So all of a sudden, the one thing the Haitian business leaders could do to make their own money, to move themselves forward, the price dropped dramatically because of all of the free rice. That didn't mean the intention wasn't good. Didn't mean they didn't need food. 
But sometimes there's unintended consequences to trying to help or rescue that even though your intention is good, you don't end up helping, you end up hurting. And so the Bible summarizes all of the books and self-help books you might have read about codependency and, and relationships and things like that with a really simple proverb about rescuing. It says, if you rescue once, you'll have to do it for the rest of your life. If you rescue him, your boss, your employee, your child, your spouse, if you rescue them once, you're going to have to do it for the rest of your life. I had a friend who attended here for many, many years, and he had a very, very successful business. And in the stroke of a pen from Washington, D.C., his entire business got wiped out of existence. I know that because he told me that story a hundred times. And he told everybody who'd been around him a hundred times, and that allowed him to become incredibly resentful. And he said, I don't have any friends who cared. I don't have any friends who wanted to help me in the midst of that circumstance. And I know many, many friends who saw him in that circumstance, did care, did love him, did want to help, yet every time they helped, no matter what they did, it wasn't enough. You got plenty, you should give more. And this person was, was tumbling, and even the people who helped were trying to do it in a way that was appropriate, discreet, that didn't set him up for failure. And yet immediately, the minute they gave it to him, there was a little bit of gratitude, and then immediately it got replaced by entitlement. They're trying to figure out, how do I help without hurting? Because no matter what I do, he's caught in the story. So we're going to look at that together. And I think in Proverbs 19, there's three specific Proverbs that are going to help us. This is one of them in really trying to understand how to deal with foolish tendencies in the people around us. Now, to do that, in this series, we're also teaching you how to study the Bible. So what I challenged you last week to do is take whatever day of the calendar it is, the 19th, the 20th, the 21st, and read that one chapter of Proverbs. So if you're going, oh, that's right, I forgot to do my homework. All right, well, you can start this week. Whatever the date is today, open the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters, so it works out perfectly. And just read it. It's like a page and a half. And as you're reading that, look for, for tendencies that are foolish and wise. And I'll give you an example of how to do that. We're going to do it today with Proverbs chapter 19, and then I'm going to unpack that for you today. And for those who read this this week, this will be a reminder. And we're going to take a blue pen and circle everything a fool does, and a black pen and circle everything that a wise person does. It says, a man of great wrath will suffer punishment. So immediately we have a man of great wrath, someone who's out of control, is going to suffer punishment. So that's foolish, to be out of control in your anger. However, if you rescue him, you're going to have to do it again. So it's also foolish to rescue someone who's a person of great wrath, because you're going to give yourself a full-time job description. Instead, here's what the wise person does, listen to this counsel, receive this instruction that you might be wise in your latter days. Okay? There are plans in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel, that will stand. So it seems to imply here that there's things that seem in your own heart that are going to be good. I've got to help them. I've got to rescue them. Nevertheless, that's a contrast. What God's telling you, don't rescue those people, is actually going to stand. It's going to serve you a whole lot better. What is desired in a man is kindness. Well, that's good stuff. We want to be kind. And yet a poor man is better than a liar. And so here again, we have a foolish don't lie in order to get um, resources. He continues. The fear of the Lord leads to life, which is like having awe or respect for what God's saying. And it's not just like rules and regulations. It's actually going to help you lead to life. God wants you to have life more abundant. And he who has it, life and wisdom, will abide in satisfaction. So if you want to have a satisfactory life, here's kind of the path to do that. He will not be visited with evil. 
Now, a lazy man, oh, we got some foolishness here. When you're lazy, you bury your hand in the bowl. I'll talk about that in a moment. And you're not so much as even bring it to your mouth again to eat. And you need to strike a scoffer or let him face the consequences of his action. So if you're wise and you're dealing with a foolish person, you need them to, to face the consequences. Or it's also a foolish person because it's a scoffer and they need to become wary by facing consequences. So again, if you're wise, you rebuke people who are foolish and they will gain understanding and then they will discern knowledge. So that's just a real simple way. You can read a few verses of the Bible in about five, ten minutes and begin to say, what are some foolish things and wise things? If you want to go a little farther, make a, a Word document or something on your phone, create two columns, create a column for foolish tendencies and wise tendencies. Then just write out what you found. Maybe just the highlights, the ones that struck you. A fool is a man of great wrath, suffers punishment. Maybe you write that down. You're like, you know, I have always struggled with my anger. And man, it has affected my marriage. It has affected my ability to connect with my kids. They feel scared of me more often than I want to admit. Somebody did something to me and they apologized. I didn't accept their apology because... I'm a, I'm a woman of great wrath. My wrath comes out differently. It may not come out as hostile, but it comes out as passive-aggressive and being unforgiving. You might say, wow, I'm actually acting foolishly. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, and you just write these things out. And then you say, hey, God help me. Or if you're not sure if God talks to you, just say, you know, God, if, you're, if, you, if you want to sort of bring to my attention or, or bring to my conscience which piece you want me to, to think about, yeah, really, do I listen to counsel? When somebody brought that to my attention, did I listen to it? Was I teachable? Then just begin to ask God to kind of help you work on, on, on the, the foolish tendencies, making them you know, smaller, and the wise tendencies, making them greater, because he can be the source of that. That's a real simple way that you can study the Bible and find some of the, the, the Proverbs that we're going to look at today. So three Proverbs on how to help without hurting. The first one is this. He who makes the pain should feel the pain. See, if every time somebody causes pain, you end up rescuing them from that, they don't learn that this particular action causes pain, and you've got a full-time job because they're not going to stop doing it. So a good idiom to think about in parenting and in management and in your own life is he who feels the pain, makes the pain should feel the pain. And here's how the Bible says it. If it was a, a crossword puzzle, it would be like this. A man... Let me get my highlighter out here. A man... Oops, wrong one. A man of great wrath should suffer punishment. There should be consequences when you're out of control. If you rescue them, you're going to have to do it again and again and again and again. So, a man of great wrath could be a person of great wrath, a woman of great wrath, a child of great wrath. When you have great wrath, out of control, you're no longer in control of yourself. The Bible's not against anger. The Bible says be angry, but in your anger, do not let that do inappropriate things. But when you're out of control in your anger... The natural tendency is you should suffer consequences. That's kind of how life is designed, is that when we lose control, we suffer consequences for that. And most of us, that's how we learned, actually, to control our anger. For many of us, our parents did a really good job helping us understand what we're believing, what we're feeling, to process that pain. For others of us, our parents didn't do a great job at that. And so instead of being a person of a little wrath or a child of a little wrath, we became a person of great wrath because no one trained us. When you're not trained as a child, the only other way to train is by suffering consequences. Oh my goodness, it wasn't until my first divorce I realized I really needed to do some self-examination of how I handled anger. It wasn't until I lost that job 
It wasn't until I was at a lid in my ability to be promoted because people said I, I really had a problem with my temper. That often it's punishment or consequences that lead us to finally go face to face with the great wrath that we have. And if you're interacting with somebody who has that problem, the tendency is, whoa, back away from it. Rather than to step into it and say, hey, what, what happened in the meeting yesterday is inappropriate. I can't have you do that. Here's why. And because of that, this is going to happen. Or because of that, we're going to have this conversation. To step in to bring consequences or punishment into the face because you're helping train that foolishness into somebody. You're trying to help them realize that he who made the pain, you made the whole meeting feel uncomfortable. Therefore, I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable because you need to know we cannot have that kind of behavior. Versus, oh, okay, well, everybody talks about him. Wasn't that weird? That was weird. Yeah, oh my goodness. He's got a problem. He's got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody talks about it. And that person just thinks, well, I'm so glad I powered up in the meeting. I'm glad you are, because the rest of us were. If you now, to the person who's dealing with a child like that, if you rescue him or her, what's going to happen? You're going to have to do it again and again and again. So if every time a person blows up and you find yourself saying, I think what he meant to say, I think what she's trying to say is, right? And, and if you're a pleaser like me, you want to sort of, hey, no conflict, you want to get stuff down, I understand that tendency. But sometimes the awkwardness the person needs to face, you've made us all feel uncomfortable. I'm going to have to step away for a little bit until maybe you can do some thinking about how this pattern has been destructive in, in our relationship. Or we're going to have to take a breath and, and come back later this evening and have this conversation. Because if you rescue them, they'll have to do it over and over again. So when you make excuses, when you uh, bail out your son or daughter every time they make a mistake and don't let them face a consequence, you're really robbing them of one of life's greatest teachers. And the greatest teacher the Bible's talking about is when you connect rebellion with pain, it's going to serve you well. When I rebelled, I lost control, it caused me pain. Oh, it's a great learning tool. When you, every time there's rebellion, don't let there to be any kind of pain, you actually rob the people in your life of one of the greatest tools that's going to help them learn, anger or whatever the circumstance is. Now, I get to a front row seat of that, because certainly as a pastor uh, and a pastoral team, we get to just be on the front row seats of people. So I was visiting with a couple recently, and they had a, a challenge where... Um, there was addiction involved and there was uh, just a real uh, ongoing problem with anger. And so as I was talking with both of them, I said, well, everything that comes out of your mouth, it's almost like, you know, sharp knives. I said, are you aware just of how sharp these things are? Like, whew, I'm uncomfortable even listening. I, I, could I help you maybe word these things a little bit differently? And no, I don't have to. It just, she needs to submit to me because, you know, you know, I'm in charge here. I'm like, okay, well, how's that serving you really well? Because it doesn't, seems like you've destroyed this woman who loves you. And as we began to talk about it, he began to realize that he had this paradigm, I can do what I want because I'm in charge. And that was sort of the excuse he was giving himself for how he was talking. And she was kind of resistant to have those conversations. She was trying to do it kindly and nicely, but she's like, well, you know, I don't want to get him any more upset, so I guess I just won't say anything. And so kind of caught in this pattern where she was rescuing him through silence rather than kind of a partnership of, hey, we both need to grow through this circumstance. I went to lunch, I think it was um, about six months ago, with one of our volunteers in our children's ministry. He said, boy, I have been growing so much at Horizon, learning the Bible, studying the Bible for the first time in my life. I said, what's the main area that it's helping you in? He said, oh, it's anger. He said, I didn't even think I had an anger problem. I just thought I was blunt and I was clear and I could tell it how it is. So that's probably true. And uh, you did it in a way that was out of control is what you're saying. Yeah. But you know, I didn't really come face to face with that 
until my company, I was up for a promotion. They did a 360 review of me and they said, we can't promote you any further because everyone around you says you have an anger problem. How dare they say I have an anger problem? What's wrong with them? You know, <laughs> he's kind of laughing. He said, and I realized, oh, wow. Suffering the consequence of not getting a reward forced me to go, I need to relook at this. Now, my wife has said it many times. My kids have said it many times. But it wasn't until I heard it in this arena, he who makes the pain feels the pain, I was able to deal with it. And that's when I started coming to Horizon. That's when I started studying the Bible in some unique ways. And it's in the Bible study that I'm in. It's in the studying of the Bible that God's begun to help me deal with my pain. So it was, it was consequences brought it to my attention, and it was actually the Bible and God was helping me, and I've made incredible progress over the last 18 months, and I was just so proud of the work he had done and dealing with something we all deal with but don't want to talk about. So that's our first proverb. He who makes the pain feels the pain. The second concept here is that a little pain now is better than a lot of pain later. Right? A little pain now is better than a lot of pain later. Isn't that true, like a one-minute manager? If you don't have little one-minute conversations with people on your team, and you let that thing grow, the gossip grows, the issue grows, and then there's a lot of pain later. You've got to get rid of somebody. It's just, it's just a mess, right? So better to have one difficult, awkward, little bit of pain now conversation than to have a lot of pain later when it grew so big. You're like, we've got to address this. It's been going on for two years. Two years? How can you not talk about this for two years? Well, you don't make it easy to talk to you. What do you mean I'll make it easy to talk to me? Kind of like now, you know. So a little pain now, and that's true in a marriage too. Sometimes we put off conversations because we don't want to cause conflict, which is understandable. But then it blows up five years, ten years later. Now again, if this was a crossword puzzle, this might be the way it was put together. If you and I would receive instruction, we will be wise in our latter days. So there's an aspect of which in the latter days, we can be wise. But to do that, sometimes in order to be wise later, we've got to feel a little pain now. It's a little bit of pain we experience now. And here's what Proverbs 19 says. If you will learn to be teachable, you might say, well, I'm, I like to be right. Well, everybody likes to be right. But sometimes when you like to be right and you're not open to feedback, you're going to be more wrong because you've limited yourself to feedback. And by limiting yourself for feedback, that arrogance is going to keep you from being wiser later. So if you like being right, be open to being wrong. Because if you like to be right and you're open to being wrong, you'll be more right more often later. And that's what he's saying here. Listen to counsel. Be teachable. Be open to other perspectives. Receive instruction. Receive correction. That you may be wise in your latter days. There are plans in a man's heart. No, I know I'm right here. But the Lord's counsel, receiving teachable, being open to feedback, that's going to stand. That's going to serve you well. Remember, he, he's talking about consequences here. The same passage that talked about suffering punishment, and now he's mentioning being wise in your latter days. These are connected. What he's saying here is that if you receive the counsel of your consequences, oh, that didn't work. I need to learn from that. I don't want that to happen again. Oh, I don't want to feel this again. I don't want to end up in this dance again. If you will receive the counsel of your consequences now, and it will sting, it'll be painful. Oh, I can't believe I was wrong. I can't believe I, I did that stupid thing. But if you'll be open about that, receive the counsel of your consequences, you will be wiser in your latter days. Better to receive a little pain now so you don't have a lot of pain later. 
That's how you train the foolishness in yourself, also in your kids. And that is why when you rescue or enable people from facing the little pain now, they don't get wiser. Because they go, it didn't hurt last time. No, no one's ever told me I have an anger problem. Well, like you ever watch American Idol and you think, why don't they have any friends who've told them they can't sing, right? <laughs> and they get up and they're, they're about to sing and their whole life they said, you're a great singer, you're a great singer. What are you here for? Uh, I'm here today because uh, uh, my mom said I could do anything I want. I could be a great singer. Great, what song are you going to sing? Uh, I'm going to sing a Whitney Houston song. Really, a Whitney Houston song? Oh, yeah. You know, and then they, they belt out some song. Oh, da da and they're giving it all their God, God, oh. And Simon's like, mm, getting angry, man. And finally he says what we're all thinking. You can't sing. I don't know who told you you can sing, but you need to find another career. Oh, now that's painful, right? Painful to hear that on national television. So much better if somebody had, man, I know you love to sing, but this may not be your thing. Or maybe we should get some lessons. <laughs> lessons might be good. A little pain now... You need some lessons. Sure beats going on national television, right? And so sometimes as parents, we want to... Like, no one wants to see your kids in pain. But pain is the tool that that helps us become who we are. And so if you rescue your kids or those around you from consequences, you're actually robbing them of life's greatest teaching tool. A little pain now is better than a lot of pain later. Give you a couple stories on this. So a friend of mine was coming. She had a relative who knew she was pretty well off, she and her husband. And this relative had made a lot of dumb decisions, gambling and addiction, a lot of money just wasted for decades. And so he was always doing the, the guilt trip. He knew they were Christians. Well, you know, you guys got lots of money, and Jesus says you're supposed to help the poor. And, you know, I just, you know, I only need this one little bit, just this one time. Well, this is the third one time. Well, you know, things change, and this one time is different from the last one time. And so she was wrestling with this because she wanted to help. She wanted to be loving. She wanted to be caring. But she recognized the last couple times she helped, it didn't help. Why? Because this person had not faced the consequences of their actions. And she asked me, you know, what, what should I do? She and her husband both were talking to me. I said, well, think of it like this. If, if you came and, and hit your head into a wall, <clears throat> you would learn something. Oh, that hurts. And next time you went to run into that wall, you'd say, I remember last time the pain. I don't want to do that again. But imagine if every time you're about to bash your head into a wall, somebody runs over and puts a pillow right between you and the wall. You would learn, wow, walls are soft. It actually feels good to bang your head into a wall. And this is why the proverb says, if every time somebody with anger, with addiction, is about to do something stupid, and you rescue them with that pillow, they'll be thankful the first time. They will. And then you have a permanent job description. If you rescue them once, you'll have to do it the rest of your life. Because every wall is supposed to be soft, and your job is to hold all the pillows up in their life. And that's hard. I told you about the conversation my brother and I had uh, when we didn't invite him to my daughter's wedding last October. And in in general, when I'm talking to my brother, I'm kind of like, you know, he's not going to listen anyway, and I don't want to cause any more conflict, and so I'm just going to listen to him talk, I don't believe half what he's saying. All right, well, sounds like we disagree, you know, talk in six months, you know. This time I decided, hey, do you want to have a real conversation? He goes, yes, I do. I said, well, I didn't invite you because of the drama you put in my life. And every time you call, you call to accuse me of things. I don't think they're particularly true. I'm open to feedback. Like you never call just to say, how's it going? We had a very difficult, very heartfelt, honest conversation about how we felt and some disagreements we have. 
we got done, and I'm like, oh, oh, I did not want to have that conversation. Ugh. But I felt like I, I overcame my conflict of uh, averseness, and I cared more about our relationship than I did about the initial conflict. He called my mom up and said, man, Chad and I had a great conversation. Really? He called me this week. He said, hey, Chad, I know a lot's going on in your life. I know you've got, you know, your wife just had surgery for the second time, and you're trying to, uh, you know, Got all kinds of stuff you're juggling. I just want you to know I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. It's a lot going on. And I just want you to know how much I think about you and, and how much I'm thinking about what you're specifically going through. You know, it meant a lot to me that he did that. And it meant a lot to me that I think it was because I had to sort of hold the mirror up and say, the only time you call me is to complain about me, which was objectively true, for him to go, you know what? He even said to me that. He goes, I, I'm a terrible friend to most of my friends, actually. They tell me I don't call enough and I'm a workaholic and I'm not. I said, well, that's, you can do whatever you want. But don't tell me that I should invite you to my wedding if the only time, my daughter's wedding, if the only time you're involved in my life you bring drama. I don't want more drama in my daughter's wedding. Oh. If you're telling me you want to be involved in my kid's life in a constructive way, I am all in. Here's their number. You might want to text them. It's been 10 years. And he has. My son just had uh, a trip to... Uh, to uh, Los An- uh, San Francisco for a music conference and sure enough my brother texted him hey heard you in California wanted to say hi and none of that would have happened if I hadn't had the courage to say some things I didn't want to say and again I said them very nicely I said them very kindly but I said them and then I've been thinking about them for a decade here's another one now this one might be too crazy for you but just just because truth and consequences are true doesn't mean there isn't a place for mercy and grace in parenting and, and management too. Right? There's a place for grace. And God certainly says, here's the natural consequences, you reap what you sow, but he also steps and says, okay, I'm going to save you from the full pain of this this time. Just a little bit of pain. There's mercy. You don't get what you deserve. There's a story of Ben. True story. Ben, uh, all his life, wanted to be a surgeon. In fact, he specifically wanted to be a neurosurgeon. He'd come from a rough part of town. He'd gotten a scholarship. He'd gotten great grades. He got into college. First semester doing incredibly well, but he just blew off one class. The problem is he really blew off that class. He got to the end of the semester and he realized if if he didn't get an A on this final exam, he was going to fail. And failing in this class meant losing that scholarship and his hope and dream of being a a doctor, maybe even a neurosurgeon, was just going to disintegrate around him. So he had one of those college prayers, you know, Help me, God, I didn't study. Help me, God, I need help. It's a natural consequence. Oh, my goodness, I'm about to lose this stuff. And he prayed that night. He said, God, I'm going to cram, cram, cram for this test. I'm going to get an A on this test. I'm going to get 100 on this test. I need your help. I'm going to basically teach myself this subject tonight. He opened up the book, and he's cramming. And he gets in, just really learning this stuff and getting it in. He's a really smart guy. And as he gets a couple chapters in, he fell asleep. And he didn't wake up until 8 a.m. for the 9 o'clock class. And he's now panicked. He heads to class thinking, my career is over, my dream is over, everything I hoped is over. As he's walking to class, he remembers he had a dream. And in the dream, he's sitting in a classroom with a chalkboard. And this angel walks up on the chalkboard and writes all these questions and answers on the chalkboard. And he remembered it vividly. He thought, this is probably my subconscious trying to, to tell me you, this is what you're supposed to have been doing, but you didn't do it. He didn't think much of it. He sits down in class, and as he's sitting there thinking, this is it. This is the end of my life. I asked God for help. I didn't deserve it. I, I definitely don't deserve the fact that I fell asleep. He tells the story that the teacher came in, hands out the test, and every question, 
and answer was what was in his dream written on the board that day. Which I know sounds like a pastoral story. It sounds like some made-up story. Stay with me. He ends up passing that class, makes a commitment to God. He goes, okay, thank you for the mercy. I didn't deserve this. Thank you for this help. And again, this isn't normal. It's the only time I've ever heard the story. He said, but by facing the consequences, getting a little bit of mercy, it really forced me to take my life seriously. And he did go on to medical school. He did go on to become a neurosurgeon. And he's a man who ran for president. His name was Ben Carson. And he's now our HUD secretary. But he's known for being one of the top brain surgeons. But he would say, I had to learn the consequence of not doing my homework. And I had one moment of God's mercy in a very supernatural, miraculous way that allowed me to be on the track I'm on today. So, it may be a pastoral story, but at least I got a sight of somebody. So maybe Ben lied, but I didn't. That's the story he tells. <laughs> so, proverb number three. A little pain now is better than a lot of pain later. But the third one, I think, is really helpful, especially if you struggle with this area. And this really is the balance of grace and truth. It talks about kindness. Kindness isn't synonymous with rescuing people from their pain. To be kind doesn't mean you have to rescue people. You can empathize with people. You can sympathize with people. You can care for people. You can even want to help and know that helping will hurt in a situation. Again, if this is a crossword puzzle, these might be the words that come out of the Proverbs. God wants us to be kind. Kindness is a core attribute of his followers. But being kind doesn't mean you don't let someone face the striking of their own consequences. Being kind doesn't mean that you don't punish. And being kind doesn't mean you don't rebuke. Now, depending on your personality, how you grew up, you're like, yes, it does. Kind people don't rebuke. Kind people wouldn't allow people to face the striking consequences of their life. But Proverbs, again, clearly lays this out in chapter 19. What is desired in a man is kindness. And some of us here today, this message is not hard for you. It's very easy for you to let other people face their consequences. But you ain't very kind about it. And so maybe for you, your lesson is not the consequence aspect of this, but am I doing it kind? Am I doing this because I care about the person and I want the best for them? Does my tone communicate that? Do my words communicate that? Is kindness a core value of yours? Others of us, we don't have problems with the kindness aspect. But notice he goes on to say, I want you to be kind. And better to be a poor man than be a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life. So kindness and life, these are all connected. And when you're kind to other people, there's not as much evil happening in your life. However, the very next verse, you're going to, as a kind person, encounter lazy people. There are lazy people that are living in your household. <laughs> There's lazy people who are going to work for you. There's lazy people who you work for. There's lazy people who are clients. There's lazy people who are customers. There's no lack of lazy people. And the image here is so great. There are some people who are so lazy that even if you put the food in the bowl right in front of them, they'll be like, oh, they can't even get their hand and lift it from the bowl. No. No, it's just too much work. That's the image. The, that's why the Proverbs are so great. The man is so lazy. His hand is buried in the bowl of food that you gave him, but he just, he just can't even bring it to his mouth, right? Now, if you're kind, you're thinking, oh, if I'm just kind enough, if I'm just nice enough, if I just reason enough that, that, that I, can, I can get them to lift their hand up. Well, maybe I'll hold the spoon all the way to here. Being kind doesn't mean you don't have to face the fact that there are lazy people. No matter what you do, they are going to take advantage of your kindness. 
And those people, the word uh, lazy and fool and scoffer are used relatively uh, synonymously. So when, when you're reading through Proverbs, you see scoffer and fool are very similar. So that lazy person, that angry person that needs consequences, you can be kind and also know that you're going to have to strike a scoffer. Now, now, this is not an endorsement of punching people or hitting people. But think about in those days you were training the military. Most of this is written by, Proverbs, by Solomon. And so if you're training people to be in the military, you're training them in swordsmanship. And imagine training people in swordsmanship and they never get hit or get struck. Even if you weren't using surgery, you're using sticks to get used to technique. There's a certain point at which if you're going to learn how to guard yourself or how to protect yourself, you're going to have to feel, oh my goodness, I'm glad you used a stick and not a sword, but I need to learn to defend myself. I need to learn to protect that side of me. So maybe a modern equivalent, because we're not training for warfare, would be suffering consequences. That... Fools or scoffers or lazy people sometimes have to suffer consequences. They have to feel the, oh, it hurts. I've not lifted my hand from the bowl for a week and now I'm starving. Maybe I need to lift my hand more. And being kind doesn't mean that you don't allow fools to suffer consequences. And then Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, it rhymes ideas. So often it will mirror itself in the next idea. So the same thing of striking a scoffer is the next thing. A simple person will become wary. Oh, they learn from it. They become wary. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, this isn't helping. So just like you strike a scoffer, that rhymes with this other idea. Striking a scoffer is the same thing as rebuking somebody. And just like the simple becomes wary, the understanding discerns knowledge. So if you don't like the word strike, for obvious reasons, rebuke rhymes with that. To rebuke, call into account. And rebuking is to say, hey, that behavior is unacceptable. Let me explain what it was that was unacceptable. Let me rebuke you by telling you what kind of behavior would be acceptable next time. You're very, very clear. You don't have to lose control as a parent. You don't have to lose control. Here's what's not acceptable, what happened. I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. Here's the kind of behavior I want to see, and you spell that out. And that's what a rebuke is. You can have a loud rebuke or a quiet rebuke. A rebuke is calling attention to something. It's correcting a, a wrong belief or a wrong behavior. And so you can be kind and be a rebuker. Because your goal is that that person would have understanding. That that person would discern knowledge. That's what you're trying to accomplish here. And if you have a, a personality that's particularly kind, people can take advantage of you. That's what Proverbs is saying. You need to be careful of that. I remember I had an employee, you know, 10 plus years ago that just had a lot of disagreement. And no matter what approach I took, and I, I'm kind of of the mindset that I could persuade you to do anything, especially if I'm, I'm nice about it and it's something good. I was convinced that if I could just reason enough and go over it enough that it would work out well, and it was not working out well. So I hired a professional a coach and counselor to come in and say, hey, well, we're just not really seeing eye to eye. Could you help? So this counselor came in and just sort of we talked through the issue together. Ran some testing on us, and you know, here's some issues, and, and we got done talking, and uh, didn't make any headway. And so I, I met with the, the coach counselor afterwards, and said, "So what do you think? Is there anything I need to do?" He said, "Chad, you've done way too much. You keep trying to think if you'll do just two percent better, two percent better, two percent better, but you're interacting with somebody who, no matter what you did, it was your fault. Never took any consequences for their actions. Never took any response for what happened. And he is exploiting your kindness." Well, I don't want to not be kind. Yeah, but you're being a fool. And what I had to look in the mirror and say is something that was a strength, my kindness, was actually a lie. I believe that kindness was synonymous with rescuing people from their consequences. 
And I needed an outside person who could speak into that to help me see that blind spot. So here's the big question. When you wrestle with the... And it, it's, it's difficult, right? We're helping and hurting because we want to be helpers, but we don't want to be people who help and hurt. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Do you believe pain is a gift? I don't we avoid pain at all costs, but do you believe pain is a gift to yourself and other people? Because if you see pain as a gift that helps people learn, you're going to manage differently, you're going to parent differently, you're going to respond differently. Because most of our response is avoid pain at all costs, help my kids avoid pain at all costs, help everybody avoid pain. But if you see pain as a gift, it's going to be very, very different, the mindset you bring. When you think about those three Proverbs today, which one do you most need to incorporate into your thinking? He who makes the pain feels the pain. That might change how you perceive some stuff. A little pain now will be better than a lot of pain later. That might change how you look at a situation. Or do you need to wrestle with this idea that kindness isn't synonymous with rescuing people from pain? Occasionally I do some speech coaching and I help people get better as a communicator. And I was meeting with a CEO and a managing partner who were trying to get better at their communication. And I said, well, tell me a little bit, like, how much feedback do you get? Oh, I get feedback all the time from people who work for me. They just tell me I'm really, really good. The people who work for you, who pay you, tell you you're really good. I said, you're not getting good feedback. They said, well, how about you? I said, well, every week I have people, volunteers who are my bosses. I have people who are in the church who, who are just are professional communicators, and I have folks every week after service, I come and ask for feedback. What could I do better? Any change I could make? Anything distracting? And for many, many months, I actually came and, and I speak here in this chapel when it's empty, and I have people taking notes on me in an empty chapel to give me very specific constructive feedback in like 20 different areas. They said, every week? I said, yeah. Why? Because I want to be better. I want the best talks I give to be next week, next month, next year. And the only way I'm going to get better is when people who are objective or, or can see things I can't see give me feedback. And they both laughed and they said, I don't think we're open to that much feedback. I said, but wouldn't you want to be the best communicator? And if there's something you do while you speak that's annoying, you don't even realize you do it, wouldn't you want to know it? Because everybody's making fun of you anyway, so you might as well know about it so you can stop doing it. I used to do that, by the way. My dad told me when I was in high school, I did that when I spoke because I wore a tie and I hated the tie. I didn't even know it. I did this the whole time I spoke. And it was funny for them saying, Chad, I, I hear you intellectually, that's true, but emotionally, I'm not sure I can hear that amount of feedback. They didn't see pain as a gift to them being a better leader and a better communicator. How about you? I remember uh, doing a radio interview one time and it was when my book, Godonomics, came out. And when it came out, somebody was saying, well, doesn't the Bible tell us we're supposed to be our brother's keeper? And you'll hear politicians occasionally say that. I am my brother's keeper. I said, well, the Bible does say that, but I would never quote that. Why? I said, well, I think brother, being your brother's keeper is like a textbook definition of, of, of codependency. Like, it's your job to make your brother feel a certain way, your brother act a certain way. Just try that for a week. Try and your brother, your sister, your spouse, your parent, just try and be their keeper. Well, what do you mean? I said, and by the way, you know who says I'm my brother's keeper in the Bible? Oh, the Bible says it. Yeah, let's talk about who said it. Cain, the guy who killed his brother. One ought not to quote the brother who killed his brother as an endorsement for how we live life. And the guy on the radio is like, oh, I didn't know that. 
There was a big debate going on with uh, Al Sharpton, who had just told us we're all supposed to be a brother's keeper. So that was kind of the context I was talking about. And my point is, that kind of reinforces this codependency idea that you're supposed to keep other people versus, hey, I can empathize. But empathizing with somebody doesn't mean that I have to rescue them. And so maybe this week there's some things you need to say that you haven't said. Some conversation you need to have with a brother, with a sister, with a boss, with an employee. I want this message to give you the courage to be very, very kind and very, very gracious, but also to be firm and see pain as a gift that can help people grow. What is it this week that you might need to say? Well, let's pray together. Father, many of us here today, um, we haven't had a real honest, say the last 10% kind of conversation in a long time. So, Father, I ask that you would give us the, uh, the courage, the courage to risk the relationship that may be superficial uh, so that we can have a deeper relationship that's real. To love people enough to allow them to suffer a little bit of pain now so they don't have a lot of pain later. For others of us, Father, we're really good at this, but man, we're not particularly kind in it. I just ask that you would give a a double dose of kindness and selflessness and other-centeredness and our our word choices and our tone choice that we could be the kind of people that communicate kindly but effectively, that we could develop people into the best version of themselves. And Father, do the same thing for us. Thank you that you develop us. You let us feel pain, but you also do it in the context of love and kindness as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave today, I just want to give you two ways that you can extend your kindness. And one of the things we do as a church, because we do want to help people, is we partner with folks who are very, very discerning. So we partner with Interparish Ministries, for example, to help the poor in our community. And so they do the discerning and make sure that the kind of help they're giving is really helping people move forward. And so they have actually asked us during this season, during the summer months in particular, that there's a lot of folks that because the school's out are are low on some meals. And so we do blue bags throughout the year, but there's a very specific need going on for blue bags right now during this summer months. So if you want to grab a blue bag, our church is so generous. We, we almost ran out last service. They found some more. There's a specific shopping list for what people need uh, during this time if you want to be part of that. Also, if generosity is something you want to do and how you can be part of what God's doing at the church, we're in a very exciting time at the church. We got the video equipment going in. We actually are going to have some uh, construction going on here in the next three uh, weeks for a new room for offering additional services um, because we just continue to see God's growth. And if you've already given to that, I want to say thank you so much for your generosity to the church. We're going to have live stream and video archives coming very, very soon. We're developing an app that's going to let you watch the services um, online or on your app. So if you want to watch that on your phone, that's all going to be laid out here in the next couple months. And now we're in the finishing levels of that. And if you feel like I haven't given to that, you need it. We really do because this is where we're making final decisions on money and you know, finishing levels of things. So if you want to give and be part of that, this is a great time to do that because it's a very exciting time the next couple months in Horizons history. So thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.